tuning in to another episode of coming up next the podcast thank you for streaming or downloading hopefully thank you for subscribing to the show however you are consuming coming up next thank you for listening uh the show seems to be just growing uh week by week every week been doing it for what two two and a half ish years now and and every week uh it just seems to be getting bigger and bigger and um that is a, a complete credit to you, the listener, for tuning in every week, for taking an interest in what uh, some of the top creatives of the world have to say and how they have managed to create a life of their own design. My guest this week on the show, Jason Silver. He is uh, honestly one of the most uh, engaged and creative thinkers and philosophers uh, that I've ever come across. I've been following his stuff on Facebook for a number of years now and uh you know this is one of those i mean i i say it every week um you know it's <laughs> i just feel so fortunate to uh to have a platform to to meet and speak and engage with these people that i regard as you know uh, i don't i don't even know what to, what word to use influencers motivators um i guess people who i look to uh for uh, you know a kind of sense of uh why i'm trying to lead a creative life and why i persevere why i don't just kind of throw in the towel or um you know people who i who i feel like i can learn so much from and and the reason that i'm able to do that is because you guys tune in uh, on a weekly basis. It's a lovely and wonderful symbiotic relationship that we have going. And uh, if you feel like you'd like to go above and beyond in helping me to continue this show, ha- head to iTunes or Stitcher or Podbean, however you consume this podcast, head to that platform and uh, subscribe if you're not already. And if you are, well, thank you very much. And uh, if you feel like leaving a five-star rating and a review of the show, that's going to continue to help me to bring you amazing guests. Now, Jason Silver, as I said before, just an amazing mind, someone I've been uh, following for years. He's a futurist and an epiphany addict. He likes ideas. He likes their tenacity, their flexibility, their contagious nature, their impact and their ability to expand, procreate and evolve into new ideas. Uh, now, Jason's gained a huge following uh, for his uh, popularizing takes on... Um, on philosophy and and the thrilling possibilities of creativity and technology and he's coming to australia that's right uh this little intro wouldn't be complete without the plug if you uh if you like jason silver and uh, you have been led to this episode through your like of jason silver you uh in luck if you're in melbourne or sydney you can see him on friday the 17th of november in melbourne at the athenaeum theater uh, and you can see him on Saturday and Sunday, the 18th and 19th of November, in Sydney at the City Recital Hall. Uh, and you can get tickets through www.thinkinc.org.au, T-H-I-N-K-I-N-C.org.au, uh, and also through eventopia.co. Now, I know what you're going to say. 
Alistair, why is your voice so hoarse in this uh, in this little interview? And I should uh, preface it by saying Jason was in the midst of doing a lot of media for this tour, so he only had a limited amount of time. Um, so very, very fortunate that I was able to speak with him, but it is a shorter ramble. Uh, and the reason that my voice is a little hoarse is because I uh, had just come from a Metallica concert in London and um, had been singing along with all them tunes. Um, but anyway, <laughs> I got home in time and uh, and Jason and I had uh, a, a mind-blowing chat. It was, uh, it was kind of running on adrenaline at, um, I guess it was about uh, half past midnight in London um, and I think it was about uh, 10 a.m. or something, wherever he was. Um, but anyway, that's enough of my preamble ramble. Now we'll get on to the post-amble ramble, otherwise known as the interview with Jason Silver. So you're you're heading to Melbourne and Sydney uh, towards the end of November, seventeenth, eighteenth, seventeenth, uh, and the nineteenth of November in uh, in Melbourne and Sydney. That's right. That's uh, that's that's very cool. It's yes. very cool that you're um that you you're coming out to Australia. I've I've been um following, following your stuff for uh, a few years now, and uh, you know every time it pops oh, up. Oh wow! In, um, yeah, every time it pops up in my feed, it's uh, you know it's it's like a little shot of uh, of adrenaline fueled kind of inspiration or motivation or a kind of philosophical, uh, I don't know Thanks. rhapsody. Thanks. Um, I'm happy to hear that. Yeah, thanks. Something that I'm that I'm really fascinated by with uh, with everyone that I speak to on the show um, is if they remember the kind of the, the first time that they did what it is that they now do for a living. Um, and I kind of uh, I noted that you kind of grew up in a in a household that was kind of like a Woody Allen film. Yeah, I mean my. Um my mother's a teacher and uh, we grew up in a secular Jewish household in South America in Venezuela. Um, and my mom teaches literature and is also an artist and a sculptor and a poet. So our home was kind of a living, breathing exhibition of her art and her work. I mean, we had sculptures and installations and just art and poetry all over the house. And me and my brother got to play in that playground. And I've been playing with the video camera probably since I was like, I guess, 1996. So since I was like 13, 14, I've had a, a camera and I was making videos with my brother and I used to host these salons and I would have my friends over and we'd videotape ourselves talking about interesting ideas. And I just kind of fell in love with the quality of the camera to memorialize. I, I was always interested and caught up in and anxious about ephemerality, like inspiration, joyous moments. They're all passing in the night you know they all end as quickly as they start and the camera was a means of immortalizing and memorializing these moments and it was also a way to bottle ecstasy to bottle inspiration to clothe inspiration this has always been my sort of this is how i rebel against ephemerality i i, I capture and i clothe ephemerality and I make it last forever that's my thing it's always been my thing do you remember what like do you, do you remember what the first thing that you ever crafted with your camera and what the kind of what the I- idea or the ideology of it was? 
Well, uh, it depends. The first thing I ever crafted that had like a philosophic uh, framing or the first video that I ever made, because I used to do a lot of spoofs and comedic stuff as well with my <laughs> oh, brother. Tell me about even that. Earlier, I mean, we were like, yeah, we used to make spoofs of movies and I used to be the director back then and I would cast my brother and my cousins and make them act like all these different characters and do all these impressions and and I was very much like the Machiavellian director. Like I was like controlling the whole thing and getting them to do all this funny stuff. And I, I, I liked, I liked being in control. Um, my own experience in front of the camera started a little bit later, probably when I was like 16 or so. And I started to discover an affinity for communicating philosophic ideas. And so I record these conversations and then I set them to music and it was really haunting and powerful. I was like, Oh my God, like, saying something interesting and then you set it to music and you can transform it into something poignant and evocative. And so you could say that I was doing that since the, since the yeah, mid, mid to late nineties. Um, and then in university, I went to film school and upon graduating from university in 2004, I made a 12 minute uh, film documentary short about uh, hedonism and sort of the, 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 the philosophy of pleasure and the idea that pleasure could be a means of transcendence. Um, that not all transcendence has to come through self-denial, that some of it can come through indulgence. And that was a film that got me my first job in television. So that short 14-minute doc got me a job working for Al Gore's television station, Current TV, which was a TV network that Al Gore co-founded in San Francisco in 2004. So my short film got me the gig as a presenter on that network, and that was the beginning of my career. What was, a, what was the moment... I, um... I've uh, read in a few places that you talk about becoming a wonder junkie. What was the kind of the moment for you? What was the moment? Yeah, I mean, there's been so many. Uh, I remember when the movie Contact came out in 1996 uh, with Jodie Foster. I became enamored of that film and I really identified with her character, the Ellie Arroway character. And of course, that film was based on the Carl Sagan novel Contact, which he wrote and described her character as a wonder junkie. He called the Ella Arroway character a wonder junkie. The way that she looked upon the cosmos, the way that she gawked upon the universe, her, her questions, her wonderment, her curiosity, that made her a wonder junkie. She was addicted to the question. She was addicted to the mystery. And I related. I had that existential angst, you know, even, again, at 14 years old. I watched a film like Contact, and it would resonate with me so deeply course when films like the matrix came out i realized that i had an affinity for this genre or for false reality genre films films that make you question your world and question reality and question everything you thought you knew and i wanted to participate in those conversations i wanted to be a director originally but then i felt i didn't have the patience to work on feature films <laughs> so then i was like well how can i make media how can i yeah how can i make media because again digital tech opened a whole world for me and, and my question became like how can i make media that will touch and agitate people the same way that motion pictures have touched and agitated me. And so that's kind of how I emerged. Right. And how did you, as a 16 year old kind of satiate that, that existential curiosity? Was it, were you just reading and you, and, and consuming as much kind of content as possible yeah. or did you kind of go in inside? Yourself? Oh yeah. Yeah. I was voracious. I remember I used to take really long baths and I'd bring the books into the bathtub with me and I'd be reading books like Ernest Becker's Denial of Death or, you know, uh, Terrence McKenna's Food of the Gods 
or uh, Michael Talbot, The Holographic Universe, or David Deutsch's The Fabric of Reality, or I used to read Michael Crichton novels as well that I was obsessed with. You know, his whole take on science was always fascinating. And I was just, yeah, I was always a rabid consumer of this kind of stuff. And then I also loved philosophical films. Philosophical films, I, was, I had a massive DVD collection. I had a massive Laserdisc collection. I, I was lucky in that I could always convince my mom to let me buy whatever media toy I wanted because she wanted to support my craft and my curiosity, so... And so when you kind of uh, coming out of film school and, and you've made this, this documentary yeah. that's, that's gotten you um, that your first TV gig, how do you kind of yeah. how do you kind of move through that and then start to really hone and craft your own kind of voice as, as a, a, a media personality? Yeah, so that got me the gig, and I worked at the network that Al Gore started for five years, and it was really cool because I got to move in LA. I got to move to LA. I had enough, you know, they paid very little, but it was enough to pay rent in an apartment in Hollywood. I had a roommate, and all we did was go to parties and meet people in the industry and try to slowly but surely claw our way into the right networks, the right circles to open up new opportunities. I was very ambitious as a media personality. I wanted to have a voice and I was interested also in filling a niche of like smart killer content, you know, because especially in the non-scripted world, it was mostly reality shows back then. You know, it was mostly like the Hills, you know, and these silly shows of like people partying all night. You know? And I wanted to make non-scripted, non-fiction content that was compelling and that was pregnant with philosophic wonder. I wanted to be the new Carl Sagan or bring at least that kind of sensibility to content. And, you know, it was hard in the world of television. I mean, the Al Gore network provided a nice launching pad, but nobody watched that channel. And all the meetings I took over town were like, you got to dumb it down. You got to dumb it down. You got to dumb it down. So it was really when I decided, screw it, I'm going to do my own stuff online, put it on Vimeo and put it on YouTube with no marketing budget and no production company involved. And all of a sudden I started finding my people, started finding my own audience and I did it myself. And when I left Current in 2010, I started just to do my own video content online, out of pocket, with the little money I had saved, started making these digital shorts, the shots of philosophical awe, philosophical espresso. And those videos started resonating, and they started reaching the right folks, the people from the TED conference, and the people from like futurist circles, and Silicon Valley, and the tech world. And I started getting invited to conferences and Microsoft invited me to an event in Australia and I got invited to another event. My first time in Australia was 2012 for a conference for Microsoft. And then I also spoke at the Festival of Dangerous Ideas also in Australia in 2012. Actually, Australia was the first country that I did a paid speech for oh, wow. before America. I had done I had done three or four appearances where I would show one or two of my videos and speak at events in the U.S. like the Economist Ideas Fest. Ted Global in Edinburgh, um, a couple things in New York, but none of them paid. And after I participated in Ted Global, I got my first two paid speeches. Both were in Australia. It was the Microsoft event in Brisbane in the Gold Coast, and it was the Festival of Dangerous Ideas in the Sydney Opera House, both in 2012. So in a, it's funny that Australia, going back there now, you guys seem to have a thing an amazingly open mind and a hunger for this particular kind of content. I remember going to the Sydney Opera House when I had, you know, I didn't have the Twitter or the million Facebook followers in 2012. And nonetheless, I spoke to a full auditorium of people that bought tickets to see me at the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. That was insane. And it was one of the greatest talks I ever did. It was called We Are the Gods Now. 
you can find it online. And since then, I've been to Australia two more times. I went last year. I went with my father, and I spoke at an event called Wired for Wonder, which was sponsored by the Commonwealth Bank. And again, in Melbourne and Sydney, amazing events. And now I'm going back for this Think Inc. So it's like, wow, I mean, America needs more stuff like you guys have in Australia, and where people buy tickets to see people make them think. Like, that's amazing. It's pretty incredible. And I think that you present the kind of right balance of intensity thought-provoking but kind of just straight up as well it's not really like there's no there's no fucking around or beating around the bush with what you're putting out there you know it's like this is what it is right and i think that australians i think australians connect with that kind of uh that 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 kind of sensibility yeah well i like you guys (laughs) (laughs) um so you know one of the things that you're really um kind of creating i suppose with your work as well as you know uh, uh, provoking people to think on certain ideas is um the way that you you're you're using technology to excite people about philosophy and about science was that a kind of intentional uh thing that you that you wanted to do yeah i mean pretty much i can't help myself pretty much anything that i find uh, compelling, I, I, I tend to see through a philosophical lens. So many of my first videos were about the future of technology. I, I remember reading Ray Kurzweil's book about the singularity and, and reading about exponential technological change and Moore's law. And like, wow, like in 40 years, the supercomputer shrank from a half a building to a device in your pocket. And then the next 25 years, the supercomputer is going to be a blood cell size and it'll be in your brain. And it was like, this stuff was like, all data driven and it was based on like real trends that were quantifiable and measurable. And all of a sudden I was like, my wildest imaginings seemed feasible. And so technology became the ultimate metaphor, the ultimate lens for a human transformation of the self. Like, Oh my God, here we are expressing our creativity through the form of embodied technology, right? And the technology becomes then the extension of our creativity and agency in the world. And this, this narrative just took off, you know? It is the TED conference. I mean, it is the techno-utopianism. It is Kevin Kelly, Wired Magazine. I mean, and so the videos that I did in that space are what got me on the speaking circuit. And of course, I've expanded the list of topics of my videos to pretty much anything that is related to the human experience. Um, but it did start with tech and futurism, for sure. So, you know, one of the things that I speak to a lot of people about i speak with a lot of creatives on this show and you know so much of what i see in people who have achieved a certain level of success and autonomy in their creativity is just this idea of putting one foot in front of the other and actually just taking action and putting yourself out there and making shit and making shit happen what what's your kind of mm-hmm. take on that idea as someone who's done that uh yeah, you know, it's like I never had a plan, but I had a compass. I had an intuition. I had an abiding belief in my own inner voice. And that persistence and that unwillingness to stop or even to heed the advice of many who claimed to know what was in my best interest, uh, I think was the fuel that got me where I needed to get to. There, there was definitely a sense that I, I, I knew that if I could get this content in front of people, they would respond to it. 
And so I had to just be persistent. I had to just not seed even for a moment. And and how do you kind of, uh, how do you define success or the success of videos or the talks that you do or even your career in, in a kind of bigger picture sense? Yeah, well, I mean, I think success is to get paid to do something that you feel compelled to do for free and that you probably would be doing for free. I mean, I, I, I don't, you know, doing, doing you know, the, the hardest part of what I do, I would say, is the, the jet lag, not the fact that I have to give a talk in front of people, you know. Giving a talk in front of people is energizing. It's sharing my art. And with a receptive crowd, it's, it's, it's nothing feels better than it. Um, so the fact that I get paid to do something that comes out of me just intrinsically is, is a gift. So that, that's success. You know, if you, if you, if you get to live your passion, you'll never work a day in your life to a certain extent. Um, and I guess a more empirical measure of success could also be the whole Kevin Kelly, 10,000 true fans. You know, if you build a niche audience, you don't, you don't need 10 trillion followers you only need 10,000 that really support your work and that's probably enough to create a brand you know there's a um there's a great quote that you say in uh in the existential bummer video which really just stuck out oh, yeah. to me um and yeah I mean, i'm so you know that the, we're also like uh swept up in this idea of existence and what we're here for and, and, and why we're here. And we're all, you know, looking for yeah. meaning in, in, in everything and, and creating that meaning. And, and it was this Sheldon Solomon quote. I'm sure you knew exactly what I was about to reference um, in that existential oh, bummer. Tell me, tell me. <laughs> the, uh, the explicit awareness that you're a breathing piece of defecating meat destined to die and ultimately no more significant than a lizard or a potato is not especially uplifting. <laughs> <laughs> That's heavy duty. It's heavy, heavy duty, duty, and it's but it's yep. so it's it's so kind of yep. poignant. It's like it's it's everything and it's nothing. Right. I suppose uh, c- considering this is something that you kind of created a little while ago, how is your kind of idea or understanding of of existence and and what we're here for evolved? Well, the truth of the matter is, I lately. I'm still searching for like ultimate meaning and I haven't found ultimate meaning. The only meaning I have found is what's called self-constructed meaning. So you could call it a self-serving delusion if you're a cynic, or you could call it a necessary construct if you're a believer in the ideas of Ernest Becker. He says character is a vital lie. So human character is an invention. It's a construct. It's a symbolic virtual reality. And we invest ourselves in that virtual reality we invest ourselves in that story that we tell ourselves about ourselves but the thing is the dream is real when you're in it just like a really good story once you suspend disbelief and and sort of embrace and believe in the storyline it becomes real and so that's what i think is the whole meaning of existence is, is to invest yourself in a sufficiently grand story that serves your own needs for meaning and allows you to serve humanity in a way that increases creativity and compassion in the world. And that's good enough for now, but it doesn't mean that I've given up on the ultimate explanation <laughs> and like Jody Foster in contact, I'm still waiting for an answer, you know? Yeah. But in the meantime, I've got a pretty good story that serves me, you know? So it's essentially, I suppose, uh, what you're saying is, that it's you know we get to a level of self-awareness where we've kind of um, dealt with our 
limiting beliefs or our kind of preconceived ideas of ourselves that hold us back to then create a framework and a structure that helps us to live in that kind of state of love and compassion, like you say, and kind of creative flow. Yes. But the point being, if it all means nothing, then it's a blank (laughs) canvas to create a theater that serves us. And that theater can be really freaking fun, even if it means nothing in the end. It can mean everything throughout, as as long as you're invested in it. Well, I guess the kind of paradox of, of everything being meaningless is that everything is also in, like they're, therefore meaningful. It's that kind of... Correct. You know, uh, like you say, that, Correct. that, that blank Correct. canvas. And if, the, and, if, and, if, and, it, yeah. and if the aliens ever do show up you know, <laughs> to smile at us and tell us what the big picture is, then all, you know, I'm still waiting. Yeah. <laughs> do you carry a lot of your um, Jewish beliefs? I know you said it was you're quite secular. I've, I was actually also brought up um, in a in a Jewish household and yeah, much more of a traditionalist than a than a religious uh, Jewish household. Yeah, I was in an intellectual Jewish household, so I think I think the values that I carry with me are the kind of intellectual Jewish Judaism. You could argue where there was uh, what was celebrated at the dinner table was ideas what was celebrated was education what was celebrated was creativity what was celebrated was respect for your fellow uh, man or woman respect for all life what was celebrated was liberty and free thought you know uh, that that's the kind of judaism that i grew up in you know so i guess you know coming back into this kind of notion of, of, of a blank canvas. I, I speak with a lot of people as well about the idea that so much of life is, is about coming back to this kind of state of, of being in an unconditional loving state of, or, or compassion. And, you know, sure. particularly in this kind of day and age, I guess, there's, there's so much kind of fear that's, that's driving uh, people and 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 society. I guess so. I suppose what I'm what I'm asking is, how do you find when you're in those states of uh, fear or or lacking in compassion? How do you pull yourself back in? Well, the thing is, when you're in a state of fear and you're stressed and you're anxious, um, usually it's a sign that you're not being your brain is not being resourceful. You're not in a resourceful state. Human beings are amazingly resilient when they're in a resourceful state. Um, Alan de Botton, the British philosopher, famously said that so many times, you know, depression and despair can be reduced to simple low blood sugar and lack of sleep. And so I've become friends with my body. I've become friends with my metabolism. I've realized that a lot of the time, that sense of fatalism and resignation means I didn't sleep well last night, okay? And sometimes being jet lagged can be confused with being anxious or depressed. What you really need to do first and foremost is take care of your physical body. That's why exercise is so important for anxiety. That's why solid sleep is so important. That's why drinking you should keep to a minimum. And if you're going to experiment with any quote unquote pharmacological intervention, (laughs) you know, keep it limited to, you know, cannabis and in the right environment with the right people, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's that kind of self-love first, and then you'll have that kind of self-love or that other love the, next. The, 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 temple, the temple, if you take care of your temple, it, it becomes really a conduit for your best self. Yeah. It really does. Well, uh, I can't 
wait to have you back in Australia. Friday the 17th of November at the Athenaeum Theatre in Melbourne and Sunday the 19th of November at the Recital Hall in Sydney. I feel like we could just wax for forever, but yeah. I'm uh, very conscious of not wanting to take up too much of more of your time. But I do have one last question, which is my final question on every episode. Sure. And that is, what makes you silly? What makes me silly? Ah, oh, I love being silly, man. So, I grew up in South America, in Venezuela, and there's a stereotype about a particular... You know, Venezuela has a lot of amazing people, even though the country is in shits and shambles right now because of the government. It's an awful situation. But Venezuelans have always had a sense of humor about a lot of things, including the fact that there's also a subset of Venezuelans that, that, that we jokingly refer to as like the cocky and arrogant know-it-alls um, who continue to um, to believe that, you know, that this government is going to is going to rescue, is going to do the right thing, and even though it's clearly the opposite. So often me and my very good friend who I grew up with will do uh, impersonations of some of these people in power. And <laughs> we do these impersonations mostly for ourselves, but you'd be surprised how long we can stay in character imitating some of these politicians until we're laughing ourselves into a hysterical frenzy of almost like stomach ache from the laughter. <laughs> so sometimes the, the ultimate, the only response to tragedy is laughter. And in the case of my country in Venezuela, sometimes it's just making fun of these morons uh, is the only way I can deal with the fact that my country is in shit. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much, Jason. You're welcome, man. Thanks for the opportunity, and I hope to get to see you in person. Yeah, I'll see you in Melbourne. Thanks, man. All the best. Mm-hmm.